What's up, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of the Ian Mills Podcast. I am incredibly excited about my guest this week. His name is Eric Godsey. And if you have not checked out Eric or any of his work, I highly, highly encourage you to. He has been a student of psychology for the past decade. Uh, He is a Jungian scholar, the host of the Myths That Make Us podcast, which is dope. And um, he's also one of the coaches for Fit for Service, which is a fellowship that I'm a part of. And all around, Eric is one of the most intelligent compassionate like kindest most loving all around awesome human beings that I've had the pleasure of meeting and we got into a fucking awesome conversation about a bunch of stuff that I couldn't have really foreseen it was fabulous and before we recorded this podcast Eric was in the process of writing an article called What is Trauma? And uh, it's since been released, and I've read through almost all of it. Um, It's pretty long, but not incredibly long. But the reason it's taking me so long to read through it is because I've been stopping to take notes, like literally every two minutes, because I can see so much of this in my own life. And even just in the several days since beginning it, um, it's been like impacting, like viscerally impacting. I could see it play out the way that I speak to myself, the way that I think about myself and interact with others. It's brilliant. And I truly believe that the work that he is doing is a pivot point around this mental health crisis that we're in like there's a revolution happening and i think he's a really big part of it this article is essentially rethinking what mental illness is and how we can actually cure it not treat it with you know medication and therapy for the entirety of your for the entirety of your life but like actually um cure these things um by dealing with the unresolved traumas that we were dealt as children or throughout our life. It's really incredible. And I will post it in the show description so everyone has the opportunity to go look at it. Anyone listening to this, you could benefit from this. If not for you, then for the people that you love. It's beautifully written. And there's a point in this podcast where Eric is going to offer you and me a challenge. And without spoiling it and going into too much detail, essentially what this challenge is, is to do the scary, difficult um, things that you might be afraid of or feel resistance to as they come up throughout your day, whether they're big or whether they're small, because he believes that these things these resistances are the whisper of what in ancient ancient greece they called the daemon and these are essentially your potential growth points um that can reap the most reward for you and again i don't know that i'm doing a great job of explaining all of the the nuances of it but 
um, I'll let him do that. But I say this because I accepted the challenge when he gave it um, and actually made a really deep commitment to doing it. And that began the week after we recorded this um, at the Fit for Service Summit in Sedona, which you may have seen me talk a little bit about on Instagram, but uh, I'll dive into a bit more of it next week on um, on my next podcast. And I might actually do a solo cast about it in the meantime, because it was such an incredible experience. But I carried that energy with me back home and continued doing the hard things. And it has brought so much joy, actually, into my life. Um, like it's been six weeks and honestly, I feel different, like a tangible difference. And I think it'll be reflected, um, listening to this episode versus the next, because honestly, uh, I was actually really nervous about this one because whether he knows it or not, Eric is one of my greatest mentors. I really admire him and look up to the work that he's doing. So with that, um, let's get into it. If you want to support the podcast, the best ways to do that are to go onto iTunes and just leave a rating and a review. Or if you're listening and you, you like what you're hearing and you feel like someone you love could benefit from hearing this, share it with them. Uh, I would deeply appreciate it. I already appreciate you just being here listening. I love doing this podcast. It's one of the most fulfilling parts of my life. I love having these conversations and sharing them with you. It's such a gift. Thank you. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eric Godsey. I love you all. How are you doing today, man? I'm good, man. I've been deep in uh, studying trauma and writing the trauma article that I've been working on for like the last month, um, basically all day. Hmm. What was your biggest takeaway from what you've been researching today? Uh, today specifically, um, getting into the symptom that's called reenactment and recognizing how, and this is a whole thing, but that uh, my favorite idea in psychology is this idea of the daemon. And that the symptom of reenactment seems to be the daemon intelligence inside of us seeking to heal what the trauma is. And again, to explain all of this might take the entire podcast, but maybe this is where we go. But um, seeing that the same energy inside of us that creates dreams seems to be the same energy inside of us that is seeking to heal trauma and that... Um, what helps people heal trauma, specifically somatic trauma. Uh, there's a difference between like story trauma and animal body trauma, but that to heal animal body trauma, you have to complete whatever the adaptive, whatever the adaptive action was that needed to be done in the traumatic moment that got inhibited and that that can be healed symbolically um, in the same way that dreams can create visions or images in the dream state that can help you process memory. And again, to unpack all of that would, you know, and we can, but 
the biggest insight today was seeing the link between uh, the daemon dreams and trauma. So essentially that the same part of ourself that is showing us what we might need to see most in our dreams is also creating the environment for us in our actual like waking reality for us to be able to go back and finish processing these traumas that one of the aspects of that energy that provides you your dreams to help you process things is bringing you unconsciously back into situations that actually re-trigger the traumatic experience emotionally with the hopes not to torture you but to give you the opportunity to behave in a way now that if you had done that in the past it would have been it would have allowed you to have adaptively escaped or avoid or fight off or contend whatever the traumatic experience was what have you found for yourself to be the biggest tool that helps you identify when one of those situations is coming up in your life and you're given the opportunity to finish reliving one of those traumas yeah um it is to any practice that allows you to cultivate the felt sense of what is happening in your body and so you know the core technique is meditation but to feel when you are having a traumatic response to something that you know is not a mortal threat and uh, i actually just went through a whole experience on this the last couple of weeks that i could probably get into that could highlight how this works uh but it's kind of a story do you want to get into it i would love that <clears throat> okay so my core wound in childhood around like the age of uh <clears throat> like five um was when my mom would go through a depressive episode i would feel abandoned and betrayed and as a four or five year old i i didn't even know how to contend with those emotions but when the person that i had the closest intimate relationship with would feel like she was gone or emotionally unavailable i would feel like abandonment in my body and then couple that with um when i started to do this work on trauma i remember that when i was like nine uh the only time that my mom went out drinking like where she actually left the house at night to go drink that i can remember was she went on a date with my dad um and i went to bed while they were still gone and the babysitter woke me up around like 1 a.m. to let me know that my parents had gotten into a car accident and that they were in the hospital. And I remember feeling like, oh, my mom died. And so I just got out of a relationship that had just recently that has been um, the most beautiful and like eye-opening relationship that I've ever been in. But what I realized is that um, my partner's binge drinking and then um, not having a defined container of monogamy was re-triggering both of those traumas in my childhood where when she would go out at night and I wouldn't hear from her, my animal body was reacting as if my partner was dying. And I did not understand why my emotional body was reacting so powerfully. And it took like seven experiences with his partner over the last eight or nine months to help me finally, and actually it was through studying the trauma work that helped me see like, oh, 
my body is reacting as if my mother is dying whenever I go to sleep when my partner is out drinking and I haven't heard from them. And then coupled that with the very uh, evolutionarily derived pattern or instinct that as a man, if you feel that your partner or if your partner is having sex with other people, your body feels like it's fucking dying. And that is hardwired into our biology to, for, for adaptive reasons. And what I realized, like literally just two days ago, and I had a conversation with her yesterday where we transitioned the relationship was, um, I, was I was trauma bonding myself to her through each night that she binged and that I was replaying my childhood wounds of abandonment and betrayal and that uh, as a man now, feeling comfortable expressing anger, clean anger, which clean anger always translates to boundaries. I was finally able to like basically say, you are not safe for me to attach to. Uh, I have to create boundaries with you. I can't be in an intimate relationship with you as long as you choose these behaviors and these activities. And what I realized is that that is a adaptive behavior now that if my five-year-old was capable of doing that, that that would have been the adaptive response to the traumatic experience. So this, so this experience that you had when you were from, from five to nine, right? it sounds like that's kind of culminated in this last like eight to nine month relationship um, ultimately with this revelation that you had two days ago where you knew that the boundary you now had to set was removing yourself from this. Is this something that you've seen play, like looking back now at your previous relationships throughout right. the rest of your adult life? Like, do you right. see this yep. playing so, out in the rest of them as well? So it didn't play out that much. But what I did notice is with my first primary partner when I was in college, um, <clears throat> I, I remember distinctly the day that I fell in love with her. Like we had been together for like four or five months and I told myself the story that, you know, like this is a really cool girl. I'm going to be with her, but you know, I'm not in love. I, I remember the moment I fell in love, I had this obsession with she had cheated on me and hadn't told me. And I'd never experienced that before because I'd never really truly fell in love. And I think falling in love on one level is your biology is now relating to this other person as your mate. And once your biology starts to relate to this person as mate, different evolutionary programs get activated. And um, for technical reasons that we don't need to get into, women fear most their mate falling in love with somebody else. And it's, it's because that was the most threatening to the child. And again, this is a whole thing that has to do with evolutionary biology men are most afraid of their partner having sex with someone else because that has the most threat to his child. And again, there's evolutionary reasons for that. And so that the moment I put someone in that category of mate, I started to have this fear of them cheating. And I think that that was the first echo of my abandonment and betrayal wound that I got from my mom, you know, because the betrayal in romantic relationship for a man is, they have sex with somebody else. And um, it took me a couple of months in that first relationship to like really start to, to, to feel that it was just fear. 
that she had done nothing and that it was completely my erratic belief. And then once I contended with that, um, I had quite a few like healthy relationships that, you know, had their own life cycle. And then um, a relationship last year, it was the first time that I actually got cheated on. And um, that was my big fear, you know, in all my relationships before that. And I showed up to it in a way afterwards where I was so proud of myself for how I had done it that it felt like I had healed the core, okay, what would I do if I got cheated on? You know, and I felt like I handled it like as well as I possibly could. Um, what was unique about this current relationship is that it matched the flavor of the relationship with my mom in the sense that the felt experience was some outside force is possessing the thing that I love. And it doesn't want to go away from me, but it's being taken away from me. And that was the unique like flavor of the feeling of when I was five. And so there was something unique about this one, but there were echoes of the betrayal wound in two of my other relationships. Mm. So in the moment where this, like the greatest fear that you had around relationships, when it finally did come up and it finally did present yourself itself for real in your life, how did it ultimately feel and how did you respond? Yeah, so this is really interesting. 99% um, of the pain was the night where I was anticipating it happen, which was the night that it did happen because the way the circumstances unfolded, I could feel that it was coming that night because of the way the environment was where she was at. Uh, and that's where the majority of the suffering came. And that once it was known, there was the shock moment, but then it was just like, okay, this is now the truth. Now I can move forward, you know? And so the majority of the discomfort was, was in the anticipation of the quote unquote betrayal. Um, the reason this last relationship that just passed was so painful was because each binge night felt like the anticipation of the betrayal and the betrayal you know, the quote unquote betrayal didn't happen while we were in a committed container at any point, but each binge night was the anticipation of it because of this feeling of like, you know, uh, the addictions to the things that go into the binging felt like it took her agency in the same way that my mom's agency was taken by the depression. And so 99% of the pain comes from the anticipation of the bomb coming on on like a a psychological or even an like evolution based standpoint can you tell me like why it is we are so inclined to be focused on the anticipation of the fear coming to fruition right. rather rather than like the reality of what actually is happening in our life right so to the animal body um, something like your partner cheating. Um, and again, it's not logical, but to the animal body, it feels like you are in an environment where you can feel intuitionally that there's some type of danger that could wound your body. Because when you attach to somebody, they become a part of your emotional body. And if they're in an environment, like the way it feels to my animal body is like, um, my partner 
while I'm going to sleep inside of the safety of the tribe is out in the dark woods um, where predators are and is also um, drunk, like not able to properly function in a quote unquote dangerous environment. And there's a lot of nuances here because um, it feels like it is a part, like I can feel in my body or in my intuition that a part of men's fear about women sleeping with other men feels like misogyny. It feels like there's this inherent, like you're my thing. And if someone else does a thing to you, you're not as valuable. And there's some like, there's some fucked up stuff there, but it is also, if you understand the evolutionary logic of that we, our bodies, are these vessels that genes have created and our ego is essentially an avatar to get our body to behave in ways that are adaptive to our genes. All our genes care about is stay alive long enough to recombine us inside of a child and then have that child be able to survive after you die. Like that's basically all it gives a fuck about. And so a lot of our emotions and our instincts are to preserve our body, and to get us to mate. And as men, the woman's body does feel like it is the vessel that your genes are trying to get into to then birth a child. And then from the female's body, the man's body is this is the protector and the provider and the thing that's going to help the child not die. And so men's emotions are tied up in trying to keep the woman that they've attached themselves to to not have sex with other men and women's emotions are being, you know, weaved by their genes to get the man to behave in a way where he will be present once the baby is here. You know, I've, I've never been in, um, open relationship on, I mean, I've had times in my life where I'm maybe seeing someone and seeing other people casually, but never like a designated container where that was the idea and it sounds to me like one of the most difficult like ceremonious kind of experience you can put yourself through because there is this idea that you are every day consistently breaking down what your animal body and even right. what your emotional body wants yeah. to tell you is right and it almost forces you to the place of like transcending that coming up into your higher consciousness and seeing that, no, you don't own that person. No, you right. still have plenty of love, even if they're giving their love to somebody else. So I have an unpopular position on open relationship currently based off what I understand. And I'm completely open to it being possible that I'm just not spiritually woke enough or that I just don't get it. But where I am at currently is what I see is that um, people who try open relationship, again, just my experience currently, almost all of them are people who have trauma associated with being attached in a relationship that did not work out in such a way where they don't want to allow themselves to fully attach again because there's the fear of the pain that they experienced in the past. So that, that's one thing. The other thing is there are people who don't want the responsibility to be in a contained relationship. And it's kind of the classic, like, 
boy who or like the teenager that just wants to fuck as many people as he can possibly fuck to boost up his ego and you know like both of those things can be healing for a certain amount of time what it seems to be is that um to be in an open relationship uh requires a tremendous amount of communicatory maturity and awareness to even function within it but even if that stuff is at 100 percent like even if you are a master at how you communicate and how you do the boundaries your animal body is responding as if it's going through trauma when those instincts are being triggered and so for men it would be women sleeping with other men specifically and then for women if there's a felt sense that this other woman that he's sleeping with, he might go choose her to be like her one. And that the animal body is constantly in a state of trauma response. And like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, one of the most interesting symptoms of trauma is reenactment. And so my intuition, and I'm trying to feel into this slowly because I don't want to jump to big conclusions, is that a lot of open relationship is an unconscious seeking of reenactment of traumatic experiences in the past to help bring people to healing. But the amount of emotional and spiritual maturity it would take to hold that container in a way that doesn't just add more trauma. In my personal experience, I've seen one couple do it where it seems like, and they only did it for like two or three years, um, where it seemed like the net effect was positive. But both of them, like one of them I worked with closely, and he could barely work for seven months when it was starting. And he has all the tools of anyone I know. And like for like seven months, the majority of his workday, he was going on walks for like four hours. He was listening to every Ram Dass audio book. Like he was doing the fucking work. And him and his partner had almost a decade of monogamy to like create the foundation to hold all of that trauma. Like he was for sure going through trauma. I could see it in his body. And um, it feels like it is like to do open relationship. Like that's like, ayahuasca level stuff and that i think most people don't even know how to sit like most people haven't even learned how to do a conventional relationship well enough where you're in complete truth you're able to articulate your boundaries you're able to get through tough conversations without attacking or triggering the other person and that you have your life together enough and like your health together enough to be able to handle that stress response every fucking day um, it's, it's, it is a very, very heavy thing to attempt. And, uh, I'm not attracted to it after having tried it a couple of times. Yeah, man. What, what's coming through for me and this, again, I'm open to being wrong about this and I'm certain that it can work for particular people, but, um, there is not a single individual that I have met thus far in my life that does not have some kind of trauma around relationship. 
that does not have some, whether that's coming from um, childhood traumas and replaying as an adult in romantic partnerships or whether it's just based off of the romantic partnerships you had when you were young. I think um, I've, I've never met anyone that didn't have that. And so it seems it's, it's felt to me often that the desire for a, an open relationship is more of an escape from the fear of trying to make another monogamous race relationship work than anything else. Because the ultimate, I mean, the ultimate healing of that trauma, I would say, and for me, this has been, um, this has been huge over the last really three years, but more so in the last six months is that there is a certain amount of work that I need to be able to do for myself so that I can show up in a relationship um, whole, complete, not needing anything, but wanting to share space and co-create versus like compromise. But it's like there is a, there is a part of me that can only be unlocked through sharing it with another person. Right. And that the space of, and then, and that that space of, um, I don't know, this almost like this entity that's separate from like me, Ian, as an individual is the part that I share with somebody and that the ultimate healing is going to come from sharing that with one person, like fully vulnerably, openly um, within these boundaries that I did have to establish on my own initially. 100%. And I, so there's a couple of things that you said there that I resonate with. And the first one is that, I have found in my open relationships, like when I feel into my body, if I start as an open relationship, I never actually attach to them in a way that makes it a truly intimate relationship. You can have sex, you can have great conversations, you can feel like you support them. But when I'm honest with myself in reflection, I didn't allow myself to actually attach securely to any of them because I didn't feel safe. And then in the relationships where it started monogamous and transitioned into open, again, in hindsight, the trauma response that is the instinctual response to your partner sleeping with somebody else was so uncomfortable that to even interact with them, I to disassociate from my love for them, that in hindsight, it it just, it ate the relationship. Um, What's really interesting to me is to feel into this from a Jungian standpoint of archetypes. And Jung talked about that the alchemists and also the myths of the hermaphrodite was suggesting this ancient drive inside of us that like to attain the fullest spiritual enveloping, it happens in sacred union with the opposite. And for an animal body, for a human animal body, that is in partnership. And, that's, and that, that is the kernel of truth behind the construct of marriage, of this idea of I'm going to make a sacred vow to interweave and smash my being into yours and have us both be transformed by it. And then when you think about this from an archetypical standpoint, We have a set of archetypes that are alive when our animal body feels like we are a single individual. 
but a new set of archetypes come alive when we feel like, okay, we have found our mate and we are beginning this stage of our life. And so a whole new set of our psyche starts to come online if our animal body feels like we're entering that. And then once you have a child, a whole new set of archetypes come online for the first time that you cannot get access to until the animal body feels and knows that it's a mother or a father. And I want to experience those archetypes because it feels like it's a part of fully experiencing the human dance and that the archetypes are activated dependent upon how the animal body feels. And at least in my experience, when I do open relationship, my animal body does not feel like I have a mate. Yeah. I love that you were able to break that down for me because it's, it's been, I've been thinking about that concept a lot and I didn't really know how to articulate it in a way. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, and my, my own experience with, with having multiple partners at a time, even when there is like clear communication that that is happening. Um, and even when it's not, um, even when I'm not in deep relationship or connection with that one person, there is always a sense of guilt for me, for one. And there's always a sense of, um, I don't know, even if, even if my, even if like the main partner wasn't with anyone else, I still feel retraction from that person. Right. It's like the more that I'm giving of myself anywhere else, the less that I have to give to this one person the less I can really, really connect, the less I can really be vulnerable, the less I can really share and receive and give. If I'm hearing you correctly, are you saying that if you have two partners and you start to give to partner A, that you feel a retraction from partner B and vice versa? Yes. Yeah. So like where this gets interesting is like, where do you parse the line between what are instincts and what is cultural conditioning? And I don't know where that line is parsed, but what I know is that if I act in a way, like if, and something like this happened in one of my previous relationships where I was in a committed relationship and then I saw an ex um, at like a work function and my body responded as if I wanted to be with her sexually. And I didn't act on it, but I felt it in my body. And then I had a date with my partner that night. And I felt angry at my partner. And what I realized when I was able to get still and journal is that because I felt guilty for how I felt towards my ex, being in the presence of my partner amplified that. And so I was resisting owning the fact that I felt bad. And so I tried to push her away. And this is just one of the ways that this fucking ego like if we avoid feeling whatever the truth is that we are feeling, our ego will go through so many acrobatics to try to avoid feeling that feeling. And it thinks it's helping us because it thinks that we don't want to feel it or that we can't handle feeling it. And so a part of this is absolutely human nature. Like if you do something in a relationship that you can feel is either disrespectful or would be hurtful to your partner that you know, like that you know that it would, if you aren't aware of your own mechanisms, you will start to push away from that partner that then actually amplifies 
their feeling of anxiety and their feeling of pain. And it's, it's why if you were late to people unconsciously, you can do damage. And I truly think like where the most spiritual work is happening is in relationships. It is in relationships. That's where, that is where the real work is honed. You can motherfucking do all of the things alone, all the chemicals, you can go to the mountains, you can go to the retreats, whatever. How do you treat people that you relate to? 100%. And I mean, that, that is the work that, I mean, we, we can run and hide from our own shit for a while. You know, our, what, like there are 60 to 80,000 thoughts happening in the human brain on any given day. And a lot of them are repetitive and we're constantly coming up with um, like unseen impossible issues and then coming up with 10 different solutions for the one issue before it's ever even happened. But when it comes down to it, like that comes back. We can't, we can't run away from our own shit for that long. Um, Like our, our spirit, our soul, our, our daemon, our consciousness, whatever it wants to evolve. It wants to experience and it doesn't evolve in hours and days and weeks and months. It evolves in, um, like really, I feel like it evolves in the amount of times that we listen to it and the amount of times we allow ourselves to feel that it's there and it comes back and fucking smacks you upside the head, the more you don't listen to it. But with relationship, like it's really easy to run from that. If our, if our work is, um, if there's a third party involved in the work that I need to get done, that is going to heal me ultimately, I can, I have a way easier time running from that person than I do running from myself. And I think I hear you, I hear you, but, uh, (laughs) I think what people find out is, um, you can't run. So here's, here's how it appears to me is it's like all of us have a set of triggers between our heart and the world. And it is in relationships where you will start to hit those triggers. And whatever trigger, let's say that you have eight triggers between your heart and the world. And when you start a relationship, you don't even get to the first wall until you, you know, have been with them for a couple of weeks. Whatever that first wall is, if you run from that relationship, you still have eight walls. And once you meet somebody else, they're going to have to hit that first wall. And if you won't do the work with that partner and you run, you will hit that wall again. And as you age and as you feel into your life slipping through your fingers because you are not showing up to what you know you're being asked to do, the hum of hell behind you just gets louder and louder and it takes more alcohol more distractions more numbing more avoiding to run from that hell hum and that if you ever want to be in true intimacy you are going to have to face those walls and those walls when they break are going to hurt but if you can be with the pieces you don't ever have to have that wall up again. And like to get to the point where you can genuinely connect to another human being without any walls, it heals in a way that is beyond articulation. But to give some science to this, to kind of elucidate like how important this is, 
if you feel lonely, if you self-report as feeling lonely, you are more likely to die early than if you're obese, than if you're an alcoholic, than if you live in a place with heavy air pollution or if you smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. Loneliness has nothing to do with how many people are around you. Loneliness has to do with the felt sense that you are seen by another human being. And you know how you're seen? By letting down your walls, by being vulnerable, by sharing the parts of you that you feel guilt or shame or fear to show. And if you have those walls and you run from relationships, you're going to feel lonely. And if you feel lonely, it, it hurts the body. But what's beautiful here is what reduces those walls is motherfucking vulnerability. What were some of your walls that were built up and that you started to identify? Um, right. And what were the ways you used to run from them and the ways that you've developed to break them down? Yeah. So uh, my primary wall in high school is, so I'm not circumcised. And I remember seeing a female comedian when I was like 12, make a joke that seared shame into my body for 10 years. And the joke was all the good men are either gay or uncircumcised. And I just downloaded like shame. And so um, lot, and it's interesting when you feel into, if women can feel that you are pulling away from them, they're more attracted to you. And so in high school, a lot of, a lot, a lot of women were attracted to me and I would pull away and I wouldn't engage with any of them because I had shame. And then um, like what's hilarious is the moment that I like, it took so much mental energy for me to be like, okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna have sex. I'm gonna let someone see my dick. It's never been an issue. It has never been an issue. <laughs> and most share that they actually prefer it and we don't need to get into that, but it has never been an issue. And so that was probably my first major wall. My next wall after that was, I don't want to get into a relationship where it feels like I have to do anything other than what I want to do um, because I didn't want to feel like my freedom was being impinged upon. And the way that I moved through that one was to share. I want to sit at my desk and read and work on my business for X amount of hours. And then I basically learned to be willing to have uncomfortable conversations with my partner. And again, worked out perfectly. Uh, my third big wall was um, I didn't want anyone to live with me. And that I think was a continuation of wall two. Um, and there were quite a few that I worked through, but the last major one that I've uncovered was I've never allowed myself to articulate anger at a partner ever. Like if I get triggered, it's like, I'm wise and spiritual. I can only respond as a king. And um, it's because I didn't feel safe to express anger to my mom growing up because I didn't feel that she could emotionally hold me being upset with her. So I never voiced anger ever. Even, even to this day, I've not ever spoken in anger to my mother. And just like four months ago, uh, my partner did something that and she felt safe enough to receive me that I was able to, for the first time in my life, articulate anger. And, um, and that, that's vulnerable for me. 
that like that is probably the most vulnerable thing that I can personally do in a relationship with a woman that I love is to express anger at her. And I was able to finally do it. And it was amazing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. These like deeper and nuanced layers of vulnerability for a really long time. I identified as someone who was like, vulnerable as fuck like i have a shirt that says normalize vulnerability and i'm always talking about it and i'm like i'm very comfortable and okay with um like i'll share anything from my past ever easily anything that's ever happened to me things that i've done that i'm not proud of like i can step right the fuck up and tell you about anything that happened before this moment but where the real um the real difficulty with me for vulnerability was actually being able to express how I am feeling in the moment as they come up, especially in partnership because of the, I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff going on there, like old wounds of not being accepted for who I am or the kind of general notion that men shouldn't be emotional, shouldn't be crying, shouldn't be X, Y, and Z. And and I, and I think just back to what we were talking about before, like that, that is kind of the ultimate ceremony. Like, can you show up as you are now? Not can you tell me like how you've been for the last 25 years of your life? That's great. And I want to know your story. But who the fuck are you right now? Right. Who am I right now? Right. Because the truth is, um, you are only what you are right now. And that the past is literally only the pieces of the past that are present and alive now. You know, 99% of what has happened to you, you don't remember and you will never remember. But the parts that you do remember inform how you feel now. And like true intimacy, like is no mind, no story. It's my animal body and your animal body in resonance, in harmony, communicating as we did for millions of years before we had language. And language is really foreplay to intimacy. Like it, the actual act of intimacy has no language or has no verbal language. The, the language is unspoken. Mm. I love that this is where the conversation ended up right <laughs> off the bat. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I do have a couple questions I want to ask you. Yeah. Um, just to get um, an idea of how you're being Eric Godsey. So take us through, take me through, like what does, what does your ideal day look like when you are in the flow of things? The kind yeah. of day that at the end of it, you could lay down in bed and not have a single concern about how you showed up, what you did or didn't do. You're at peace yeah. because you knew that you did what was needed. So you have two examples. One is a day when I feel like I'm quote unquote researching and the other day feels like when I'm performing or doing the thing all day. So like a research day is um, I wake up, uh, I go straight to my altar, I meditate, I red light, I go downstairs, I get coffee, I don't talk to anybody, I go straight to my desk, I put on my headphones, I know what song I'm playing on repeat right now, I start playing it, 
And then I instantly get into working on whatever the creative writing project is that I'm working on. So I currently have been working on this trauma article for a couple of weeks. And this is my favorite part of my creative process. It's like, I know what I'm talking about. I have the science. I've already read the books. I know what the structure of the article looks like. And now it's just like writing and just getting it going. And so do that for about four or five hours. And then I eat lunch. And then I go and I have a great workout. And then after that workout, ideally, I'm spending time with either close intimate friends or an intimate partner and just being completely in the flow of what, like, truly just listening and being and intuitively responding to whatever is arising within the relationship with the person that I love. And then ultimately that culminating in like an hour of amazing sex would be ideal. And then I go to bed and it's like, that was a fucking day. That was great. So those feel like incremental progress days. Like it feels like, you know, I'm adding 1% to like the being that I'm trying to be. Uh, Performing days or like days where it's like, you know, I do this work so I can do this thing would be either a fit for service day so part of the mastermind that we're in where I just, I know exactly what I need to do. And I just show up in complete like rainmaker King mode for 14 hours. And I just know that every moment of that day, I gave my complete presence to whoever I was interacting with. I ate enough food not to pass out. And then ideally I would go to bed with my partner. Like that would be like the perfect day. The other type of day is, I do a heavy intentional experience with a psychedelic, either mushrooms or ayahuasca that take all day that bring me to the brink of whatever it is that I'm meant to be brought to. And I just get into my bed. I'm like, I fucking did it today. (laughs) So you, I, I think I've, I've heard you say on one of your podcasts that there was a time before you started working at on it where you currently work that you had applied and you hadn't gotten in. Yeah. What was the time frame between that first application and when you reapplied and got the job? And what do you attribute to being the difference that allowed you to get in? Yeah. So it's a motherfucking story, but the first time that I applied to on it, um, I had been a part of the go for your win community, which was Aubrey's first online like course thing. And I was super active in the community and the community had a graduation in Austin. And so I went and I met Aubrey and I met all the people that were in the group. Um, I was really active in the community. And so like most people knew my name and Aubrey came up to me and he knew my name. He said, thank you for like your contribution to the group. And in my head, I was like, I'm getting a fucking job here. He knows who I am. Uh, and so I apply and, um, when I applied, I had dreams and synchronicities and it felt like my intuition was screaming, you are going to be it on it. This is coming. You are going. And um, I moved to Austin before I heard back because I was so like, I can feel that this is the way. And um, the application process took like two months and it came down to me and one other person and it was to be a copywriter. Um, and I remember the morning I woke up got the email. I didn't get it. I was fucking devastated. Not because I didn't get it, but that my intuition felt so fucking clear. And I'd never been 
that wrong when my intuition was that loud. And so I drank for a couple of nights just because I was fucking like in shock. And then at the end of like the third night of drinking, I woke up the next day and I just realized like, I have to do this on my own. I have to fucking do this. So that's when I started my podcast was actually not getting the job the first time. So I started my podcast, got really into that. Um, started being like a habit change coach. And then I just started like, I didn't have a job because I was expecting to get this job, but I structured my day like where I worked for 10 hours a day and I just fucking grinded. And whenever I would write an article over like habit change or whenever I would post a podcast, I would drop it in the go for your win community. And at the end of that year, so I did that for almost a full year at the end of that year, um, it's a long story that we won't get into, but I accidentally ate like 18 times the normal amount of an edible and had the hardest. So I, I took like 180 milligrams of an edible and it, um, and my tolerance to weed after having done DMT is it's like one hit of a joint and I'm good. Um, hardest experience of my life. But the day after that experience, I wasn't afraid to do anything. So like I just started doing all the things in my life that I've been afraid to do. And one of the things is I just applied to on it again. And I applied to this really, uh, I applied to a job that was um, essentially answering customer service emails for Aubrey's personal brand. I applied. The, right after I applied, I went to look at my Facebook and the hiring manager for Onnit had posted that job listing like three minutes before I'd logged on into the Go For Your Win community. And so I was the first one to comment and I commented and I said, I just applied to this. Good luck to everybody else. I go to bed, wake up the next day. I go look at that post. Like 16 people had responded to my comment saying, Eric should get the job. Eric should get the job. You should hire Eric. Eric should get the job. And then I got a video interview, crushed it, did a phone interview, crushed it. And I knew, oh my God, I'm going to get this job. And then I fucking moved to Austin and then I got the job. Fuck yeah, man. <laughs> so the biggest, what, what I'm hearing is that the biggest difference between the first time you applied for this and the second time you applied for this was that you made this commitment to do the uncomfortable things. You right. made the commitment to do the things that you were afraid of. Yeah. Can you walk me through like what that interaction is inside of your head where at one point you would go to... Mm -hmm. Like, no, I'm afraid of this. Fuck that to now. Yeah, I'm afraid yep. of this. Fuck yeah. Yes. So before that 180 milligram weed night, whenever I would feel fear, I would unconsciously get into my head and philosophize this wise reason why not to do the thing. So I wasn't even interfacing with the fact that I was afraid. I was like, oh no, th this is just not what I do. Like, I didn't even realize that I was resisting fear but i was using my mind to avoid doing things that i was afraid to do after that experience i now i now viscerally understood what it felt like to feel fear and i learned uh slowly like okay if i feel fear about a thing that is not like objectively dangerous i have to go do it like, it's almost like it's a moral obligation that I have to go do it. And it started off as a faith experiment. And then I started to see the results from having done it. 
And now I'm at a point in my life where I've seen what's happened in my life in the last three years from having run this experiment that I'm at the point now where if I get the download or the intuition that I need to go do a thing and I can feel that I'm afraid to do it, I'm like, fuck. Because I know I got to do it. Like, I know I'm going to do it. And a part of me is like, fuck. And then I <laughs> Again? Just, yeah. Is there like one kind of because obviously ideally not everybody needs to have the experience of eating 180 grams of thc and go i actually just i listened to the podcast you just put out this week and i heard the whole story and um i recommend everyone go listen to it because it is, <laughs> it is fucking amazing and intense and um i've I almost felt it in my own body just listening to the experience. But is there a tool, a tip that you could give someone that could help them make this same transition that you were able to make on more of like a micro scale where it doesn't have to happen all at once? Like you've seen every single thing you could ever be afraid of in the entirety of a human existence. And now there's nothing left to do but fucking push (laughs) through it. Yeah, the so the invitation is imagine that you have been given the wrong story about what fear means. Imagine that fear is actually a messenger from your nervous system to actually guide you towards the places in your life that have the most return on your growth if you faced and that the culture that you have been born into and the stories that you have been given have told you that if you experience fear, you should turn away from it. And what if for a month, if you felt fear that you asked yourself, what would the hero do and feel into And don't be reckless with yourself. Like also know what your boundaries are because Icarus thought he was a hero and who flew too high to the sun and he died. But you have a felt feeling of, okay, I'm afraid of this, but I also, I know like when it's just me talking to me or me talking to my God, I know that if I did this thing, it would be good for me. Like you don't have to ask anybody a part of you knows. What if for a month you just went and did those things? And then journal every night about how you feel. Because what I will offer is 100% of the time, when I do what I am afraid to do, and I can feel that it's good for my growth, even if it doesn't work out the way that I wanted it to, even if I quote unquote fail, I always feel more on the other side of that experience, literally every single time, no exception. Anytime I feel called to do something and I don't do it, no matter what, no matter how it plays out, I feel less. And I think a huge part of healing comes from what is your relationship to yourself? Do you love yourself? And I think loving yourself becomes a byproduct of respecting yourself. And you respect yourself through the actions that you choose. Be a hero. That is the challenge. That 
Mm. I can tell you right now, I'm going to take that challenge. And a big part of it is coming on fucking Wednesday, flying to Sedona. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I invite anyone listening to step up and take this hero's challenge with me for the next month. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. If I, if I understand correctly and this, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems from what I've heard you talk about that the single most important tool you have found for overcoming these obstacles, for checking in with yourself, learning about yourself and evolving yourself is journaling. Claire actually made a joke to a group of us when we were on when we were on like an intro call. She was like, "If you do your coaching call with Godzi, tell him that Claire like tell him that Claire said like, oh, did he ask you to journal?'" Yeah. So yeah, what it what is it about journaling that has been so um, transformative for your life, yeah. and what is your method for journaling that any yeah. of us could pick up today and try? So what's really interesting is my researching of trauma has now transformed basically how I approach helping and healing. And so journaling is no longer the primary thing. It used to be for nine years. And, you know, that's why it's a motherfucking joke. But now it's, I have a greater level of nuance for how to approach this. But essentially, there are fundamentally two parts of your psyche. Really, there's thousands, but there's two fundamental different categories inside of you. One is a storyteller, and the other one is the animal. And the animal doesn't give a fuck about what your stories are, but your stories are very important. And most of us unconsciously weave shitty stories. And for me, journaling was the most transformative thing that I had ever done up until that point in my life. I think I started when I was 23 because it gave me the space to, for the first time in my life to learn how to be honest with myself. Because when you grow up in a world where you're afraid to be judged and you interact with people, you don't even know how to be in your truth because you're anticipating how people are judging you. And if you don't know what your own truth is, you don't know how to speak your truth. You don't even know how to feel it. And so you are very likely in relationships where all of your friends aren't actually your friends. They're people who have the same coping patterns that you have. So you guys are friends because you all drink. Or you guys are friends because you guys played on the same basketball team or whatever. You guys are all friends because you guys are just obsessed with trying to go out and find girls or whatever it is. You don't even know who you are. You don't even know how to begin to have a conversation with yourself. And journaling, specifically the artist's way, daily pages journaling, was for me such a pivotal moment because it gave me the space for the first time in my life to be honest with myself. And most people, when they write, most people, when they've ever journaled in their entire life, they've journaled with the expectation that what they were writing was going to be read. So they were performing. And as they were writing, their judge was active. They weren't being completely vulnerable with themselves. Expressive writing, or what's called the daily pages, is 
you write stream of consciousness. You don't ever pick up the pen. You will never reread what you wrote and you will never show it to anybody else. And you're just vomiting your truth onto the page. And I did that religiously every day, three full pages in a fat ass notebook. It took me like 45 minutes a morning. And by the time I closed or the, by the time I finished that notebook, it felt like I had just passed through an initiation ritual. Like it transformed my life. And it was because I learned how to feel my own truth. And that transformed all my relationships. It allowed me to learn how to be intimate with other people. Like it allowed me to even begin to run the experiment of being vulnerable with other people because I knew how to fucking be vulnerable because I had started to be honest with myself. So the reason I think journaling is so important is for most Western people, we are so caught up in our stories that if you don't know how to be truly intimate, which just means to be vulnerable, which means to share your authentic truth. If you don't know how to access your truth, journaling for me has been the most powerful tool to do that. And what has it since transitioned into as you've gotten deeper into your research on trauma? What I'm learning is that if the animal body doesn't feel safe, it doesn't know how to tell good stories. And so if you have PTSD, if you have shock trauma, there is body techniques that you have to do to get your body into a state where you can even begin to tell a calm story. Um, and that journaling might just like wrap you up in your own loops. And so I haven't thought about this until right now, but maybe what it would be is if like before you journal, you do some type of embodied practice that brings you into your body. And I've been studying Peter Levine's work very deeply the last couple of weeks now. And he's one of the leading experts on healing shock trauma, which is classic PTSD. And um, he's created a modality called somatic experiencing, which is all about learning how to cultivate what he calls the felt sense in the body. And one of the techniques that he offers that he'll do at the beginning of almost every session that he's ever working with, with someone to bring them into their body is basically take a deep breath and you make the sound that a tugboat will make in like a foggy night. And it's like a boom sound. So you take a big inhale and you just. And so you, you don't do it rhythmically. You do one very long one, but essentially the vagus nerve, which is the core, it's the longest, largest nerve in the body. Um, it artificially stimulates it to relax you. And if you can get yourself into a parasympathetic response, you can relax. Your heart rate will come down a little bit and then your mind will settle enough where you can actually begin to write. And so maybe it's as simple as adding the VOOM method before journaling each day. And maybe that's what I'll start doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love, I love this. Um, I've been studying yoga for uh, more so for the last year, but a little bit throughout my adult life. And that, that to me is the single biggest takeaway and 
um, benefit and reason why I would recommend it to every single person just for the fact alone that it does connect you to the parasympathetic nervous system. So wherever, wherever you are at, like essentially if, if our fear and emotions is this, you know, giant fucking hurricane and most of the time we're outside in the whirling shit, the center, the eye of the storm is, is calm. There's not a lot happening in there. You know, it's like the pinpoint in the center of everything that is whirling around us. And these practices, breath work and movement and meditation, like they are what brings us back into that center point so that we can gain perspective and see from the inside, like actually what is happening around us Amen. and and separate us from it at least a little bit. And that in combination with um, this expressive writing technique, like that's, that's the fucking jam right there mind and body animal and artist what what would you say and i i i imagine this has shifted a lot for you in your adult life just from the um the really big transitional times that you've spoken about what do you feel is your greatest potential gift to the world to tell the story of Hermea and to unpack that, <clears throat> I, I feel that the first book that I'm going to write is, and the working title is Twilight of a Titan. And it's going to talk about how we've been telling ourselves a cultural story for the last 400 years about what it means to be healthy. And I imagine, so Jung has this idea that the major stories in a culture, those are the gods because they possess you. And as long as you worship them, AKA believe in them, they will live forever. That's what stories are. And that Kronos was the king of the Titans in Greek mythology. And um, he got a prophecy that one of his children would overthrow him. So he started eating his children. And I think that that's what our current health model is doing in the world. And I'm going to focus on mental health, but it's, it's all of the same story. And that I can feel that there's a revolution happening and there's been like, you know, a God, a story, it has a slow maturation. And I, and I feel, and it's a whole explanation, but that Hermea is the name of the goddess that I feel represents this new mental health revolution that's happening. That's completely going to shift the paradigm of what we understand. What is a human? What does health mean? And how do we heal? And I think that my Dharma is to tell that story as well as I can. Before I ask you more questions, how are you on time? I am going to have to go soon. My roommate has to mow the lawn and I don't know. We, we have only so much daylight left and uh, he gave me shit before this podcast saying that he just put on his dad shorts. So <laughs> probably like, f- like 13 minutes. Okay. So once the dad shorts are on, that's when the, that's when the countdown starts. <laughs> he was ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Hermea is part of your new company that you recently started called Cathedra. Is that right? Right. The or very they... dramatic, right. So the very dramatic, goofy way that I think about my life is Cathedra is the company that I've started. 
that is the container. The thing that I wish to occupy the container is Hermea. And anything that Cathedra ever does will in some way serve what I see Hermea is. Mm. Like Hermea would be the spirit and Cathedra is the temple. Mm. And with the amount of time that we have left, if you're comfortable with sharing what this has developed into before it is fully developed and released, can you tell me what some of the um, some of the pillars of this new paradigm of what it means to be healthy as a human being? Yeah. Like, what are we? What are we? Shift. What do you see us shifting into? Right. Um, so I'm still playing with all of this, but the core story of Hermea is uh, you are not a broken machine, which feels like that's the story of Kronos. It's you're an acorn trying to become an oak tree. And to the degree that you resist your becoming, you will have messages. And the messages are here to bring you back onto your becoming. And that every organism on this planet that has metabolism, that has libido coursing through it, is seeking to become what it knows it can be. And you are not broken you are resisting your becoming. And it's not your, I mean, you just haven't been given the right tools, you know, like the right soil, the right water, the right gardener to bring you to what you could be. And some of, I'm playing with this idea of trying to create a medicine wheel to represent Hermea, as opposed to a more masculine structure of like pillars or like, a, you know, like a checklist or something. I, I'm seeing it more as a wheel. And what I'm currently playing with is, and I don't know the right names for it yet, but one of the core ones is community. And um, that word feels empty to me compared to what it could be. Like the importance of what that word is trying to articulate, I think has been completely sapped out of the word. So I want to find a new word. Um, the other one is the animal. We have got to understand what the animal is. And I think the biggest hole right now in like the spiritual movement is a lack of understanding of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology and ethology, which studies like the imprints and instincts of animals. And I, and I see whispers of that right now in the biohacking movement. Like I see the biohacking movement as like the first outshoots of this new understanding of, yo, if you learn what the animal body has evolved to need and you give it to it, shit starts to heal quick. So there's community, there's the animal body, there's the myth maker or the storyteller. And that's everything that has to do with the mind. And that's where I'm obsessed with stories. And the last one. So the way that I see it is the animal is at the bottom of the wheel. The left hand side is the community. The right hand side is the myth maker or the storyteller and the top is transcendence. And like what's wild is when you look at the mushroom studies that was done, that have been done at John Hopkins, the people, people still have the improvement on their depression and their other mental quote unquote disorders a year later. And they only did it once. So there's not a chemical effect continuing to happen for a year. And the degree that they improve is directly correlated to the intensity of the felt 
transcendent experience. And so that like we have, we have evolved and our old cultures knew you have to give the tribe experiences to experience transcendence. And that that's a core thing that the human psyche needs. And so I'm playing with that wheel. And then like in the middle is like your Dharma, you know, like each of us has a sacred call, a sacred gift to give to the world that if you don't, even if you have everything else right and you don't have that thing, you're going to feel like the core is missing and you can have all that shit fucked up. But if you really have the core going, like you'll always feel like you can find a way. Do you feel like the identification of the Dharma of the soul's purpose is the initial step of breaking out of the acorn and beginning the transformation into the tall, strong motherfucking oak tree? Yes. I think that the four points around the core is to keep the organism healthy but where you move from acorn to motherfucking oak tree is when you say yes to your dharma. Yeah, brother. I am incredibly excited to see what this work evolves into for you. I am so, so grateful to have you on here to talk about it. It's really been such an amazing experience. And my... My last question is, if there was one thing you could shout from the top of the mountain that every single human being could hear, that had the potential to shift them from the acorn into the sapling that will become the oak tree, what would you say to them? If you speak and act your truth with love, to the best of your ability, whatever happens is the best possible thing that can happen always. And if you doubt this, run this experiment for a month and watch what happens. Beautiful. And I will. And I hope many of you join me. Thank you so much, Eric. I really Thank you, brother. That. Can't wait to see you, man. Less than a week. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, man. I'll see you soon. Love. Much love.